This fall, we've been looking at uh, the life of David. You know, other than Jesus, uh, there is no one who has more written about their life uh, than David. In the whole Bible, uh, no one other than Jesus has more written than David. And so if you want to understand what the Bible is about, uh, you've got to meet David. Uh, And as Jason has been preaching on the life of David, we've looked at it through the lens of earthly spirituality. You know, we often think of David as the hero of the story the one who kills Goliath, and he's the star of the show. Uh, But actually, David shows us what it is to be a human being. He experiences the same type of stuff that we do. Thus far, we've seen that David is a man who has experienced joy and deep sorrow. We're going to see in a few weeks that he's a man who blows it big time, who falls into sin. He rejoices, he weeps, he loves, he fights, he needs friends. He cowers in fear sometimes. If you were here a few weeks ago, you saw that he dances. He's got some good dance moves as well. And as much as we want to make him a hero, he's actually a picture of all of us. And so this week we come to a very important passage in the life of David. One in which God makes a great promise, a great covenant to David. A promise that would change the course of history and a promise that leads us right to Jesus. In this chapter, we actually take a break from the narrative. Uh, if you've read through or been with us as we've looked at First and Second Samuel, uh, it's a narrative. It's a story of the life of David, but we actually slow down in this chapter and it's more uh, of a conversation between David and God. Um, the Lord speaks, and since Exodus 20, since uh, the Lord was at Sinai giving his law to his people, we don't have anything that is as long as this. Uh, this is the most that the Lord has spoken uh, since Sinai. And so with that in mind, let's uh, read this passage. We're going to look at Second Samuel 7, beginning in verse 1, reading down to verse 17. Hear God's word to us. Now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time 
that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray before we look at the text. Lord, again, we come asking for your help, uh, for the Spirit's aid. Without uh, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we are in trouble as we try to look at this text. But we believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe that you love us and care for us. And so we are bold to ask for your help as we look. And so speak to us and give us ears to hear. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we consider the life of David what it's, and what it means for us to be a human, uh, I want to look at this passage through the lens of a fundamental question that we all ask. How is it that we, as human beings, how do we relate to God? If you were to ask your neighbor, to ask a coworker, to ask a friend at school, ask them, how can I have a relationship with God? How does a human relate to the divine? What do you think they would say? How would you answer that question? You might get a variety of answers on the surface, but when you get down to the essence of what they are saying, there are really two ways that we can relate to God. And this passage reveals those two ways. The first way that we see that humans can seek to relate to God is by way works. And you see that in the first few verses of our passage. Let me, as we start, let me give a bit of the setting of this passage. Um, It begins with David sitting in his new house with the prophet Nathan. This was a house that uh, was built for David back in 2 Samuel chapter 5. This was a pretty nice house. It was made with the finest materials from the finest craftsmen. And the passage says that not only did he have a new house, but he was given rest from all of his surrounding enemies. And if you know the life of David, you know how rare this is in his life. David is a man who has been at war for a long time. Whether it's with uh, the Philistines or it's Saul chasing him, David was a man with very little peace in his life. But in this passage, we catch him at a high point. As Jason said last week, David was killing it as a king. He's in a new house. Uh, The borders are secure. His country is at peace economically, politically. He is successful. And so you can imagine him just sitting back on the rooftop of his new house, looking out over his kingdom, 
chatting with his pastor, Nathan. And David looks around and he says, look at me. I've, I've got this really nice house. But the ark of God still dwells in a tent. It seemed wrong to him. I, I've got a palace. And it's going to be in the next edition of Garden and Gun. And the ark of God is in an old shabby tent. It's in a tent that's been drug around over all of creation for 400 years. And you'll remember that the ark of God is God's mediated presence. It's it's God's house. It's where God dwelled on earth. David says, I'm living in the palace, and God lives in a tiny house. This doesn't seem right. And so Nathan the prophet, being a good prophet, could sense what was going on. He knew that David was wanting to build a temple to house the ark. And so David speaks up and says, well, you know, king, that's a great idea. You ought to do that. After all, what pastor, when the king is thinking about spending a lot of money on a house of worship, will discourage him? Nathan could see a big check coming his way. Nathan says, well, David, this seems like a really good idea. Why don't you go for it? Do all that is in your heart. Why don't you build something great for God? It seems like the right thing to do. And to us as well, it seems like this is a good thing for David to do. He had a lot of power. He had a lot of money. And there are a lot worse things that he could do with that power and money. He wants to do something great for God. You might be able to identify with that. You might say, you know, I want to leave a legacy. I want to make an impact. I want to be remembered when I'm long gone. But there's more going on in these first few verses than meets the eye. And so to understand a little bit of the background will help us to understand what's really going on. For the kings of this time, in this era, the temple was how you secured and maintained your power. It would often go something like this. A king would come to power. He would go off and he would defeat his enemies. He would gain some wealth for the nation. And then he would come back. And they would celebrate. And in the celebration, he would build a temple to the God of that country. And after the temple was constructed, the priest in the temple would deliver a message from God to the king. And it would say something like this, Since you have built a great dwelling place for me, you, king, will reign forever with everlasting abundance and happiness. This was quid pro quo with God. The king says to God, God, I'm going to build you a sweet house. And God says back to the king, you're going to reign forever. The opposite was true as well. If the king neglected the temple, if the king... uh, Uh, neglected to build something nice for the gods, the priest would deliver these oracles of doom for the king. You can see what's going on here. David is wanting to do something great for God because he wants God to bless him. He wants his rule and his reign to continue. David wants to do something great for God, but not for the sake of God. He wants to do something great for God for his own sake. It's a power move. How is David relating to God on the basis of works? With the foundation of his own work. I've got to do something great for God. 
if God is going to bless me. I've got to work. I've got to perform. I've got to be devoted. I've got to be great. Our God will not be happy with me. And this is how all the other religions of the world operate. If you want God to bless you, get to work. God gives rewards on the basis of merit. If you are good, good things will come your way. If you are bad, you better watch out. You can expect the wrath of God. It seems that this is the way that we are hardwired to relate, not only to God, but to everything else in life. We think, if I do something nice for you, you'll do something nice for me. If I hurt you, you're going to hurt me back. If I perform well, riches and blessing are coming my way. We think every day is game day. And someone is keeping score all the time. I like to illustrate this point by talking about a Fitbit. And I apologize to those of you who, are, who have been in a new member's class uh, in the la- this year because uh, you've heard this illustration before, but just go with it. Um, Fitbit. There's a million of these things out right now. They're fitness trackers. You wear them on your wrist, and they track your activity for the day. How many steps have you gotten today? And so you set it up and you think, well, I'm going to make a goal of getting 10,000 steps today. So during the day, you're going to look down and you're going to see how you're doing. And you might look down and it's almost noon and you think, I've only gotten 1,000 steps today. Uh, I'm going to have to get to work. I might have to walk home from worship today because how am I going to measure up to 10,000 steps today. And we have a a version of this same game that we play with God. You look at your spiritual accomplishments and you think, have I done something great for God today? Have I measured up? You know, you might go to bed tonight, laying your head on your pillow, and you think, you know, I've gotten 12,000 steps for Jesus today. I'm accepted. I must get the reward today because God is pleased with me because I read my Bible and I came to church, and I got here on time, and I went to KC, and haven't yelled at my kids or lost my temper today. I must have done something great for God. Or it could look like this. You lay your head down on your pillow tonight, and you think, I'm a failure. I've not done anything for God today. In fact, I haven't done anything for God in a long time. He must be so disappointed with me. And you're given in to despair. You think, how could God ever be pleased with me? I haven't done anything for him. Or you think, you know, this week's going to be different. I'm going to try really, really hard this week, and I'm going to get better. I'm going to double down. I'm going to really perform this week. But go back to your Fitbit. Whether you get your steps or not today, what happens tomorrow morning? You go back to zero. You wake up tomorrow morning and you think, I better get back to work. If I'm going to be pleasing to God, I better get back to work. 
This is, this is the water we swim in. This is how the world operates. If you're in business, you know this. You are only as good as your last quarter. That is the verdict on you. Maybe if you're a stay-at-home mom, you feel that a verdict is passed on you every 15 minutes of how you are doing. If you're a student, every nine weeks, something comes home. You get a report card that is a judge of how you are doing, or at least it feels that way. And it feels like your acceptance by your parents goes up and down based upon whether you've performed or not. And we think, well, this is how the world works. So shouldn't it be that this is how our relationship with God works as well? But how do you know? How do you know if you relate to God on the basis of works? Think about your life. Is your life filled with guilt and fear? Do guilt and fear, are those the two dominant emotions in your life? Always wondering, you know, have I done enough for God today or in my life? When you try to obey, do you try to obey from a position of fear? You know, I better do this or God is going to be mad at me. Or are you resentful towards God when you feel like you've done your part? You know, I've put, in my, I've put in my work. Where's God? God has not coming through on his part. Or do you look down on those around you who you perceive to be less committed, less devoted than you, and you say, why don't they get their act together? Of course, I've got my act together. I'm, I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Why don't they perform? At some level, this is how we all tend to relate to God. If you're here, and you're not a Christian, you might think that this is what it means to be a Christian. To perform really well, and then God will love you. And if that's your understanding of Christianity, I can totally understand why you wouldn't want to be a Christian. I can understand why you might have dismissed being a Christian altogether, or why you look at it and you think, there's no way that I'll ever be able to measure up. But what I want to ask, and what I think our text asks us this morning, is the question of what if God is different? What if the way that we relate to God is the exact opposite of what we might think? What if it were not the religion of works, but a religion of grace? God shows us in the remainder of this passage that the way that people relate to him is not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of his grace toward them. In verse 4, it's the same night. David probably went to bed dreaming of this big temple that he was going to build, sketching out his ideas for what he was going to build. And then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. God shows up and God enters into the situation. He speaks into it. You notice that Nathan and David decided that God needed a new house, but they forgot to inquire of God as if, if this were something that he actually wanted. And God's response to their plan is actually quite humorous. His words are a bit tongue-in-cheek. He goes, so, so you would build me a house. You're going to build a house for me. God says to them, 400 years, I've lived in a tent. I live in a tent that's not been renovated once, that still has the original 
fixtures from 400 years ago. Since we've been in Egypt, this has been where I have dwelled on earth. I've been on a centuries-long campout with my people. And all of this time, have I ever asked for you to build me a house of cedar? It's not like God has been hinting all along that this is what he wants from them. This is not like you trying to hint to your spouse or to your parents of that Christmas gift that you really want. It's not like God has left pictures of temples that he really likes on David's counter at night. It's not any of this. God doesn't want David to build him a house. He's never asked for it. He's quite content in his tent. But it reveals, it points to a beautiful truth about God, that God, our God, is a God who is with his people. Where his people go, God will go with them. He is not a God who is absent and aloof and distant from his people. He is in their midst. What they experience, he will experience with them. And this is a great picture that we have of the humility of our God. The Almighty, the all-powerful creator of the earth joins in on a pilgrimage with his people. He is a God who camps out with his people. And in verse 8, God really gets going and he gives David a history lesson. David, do you remember where you came from? You were a shepherd boy. And I took you from chasing sheep, and I have made you prince over all Israel. I chose you when you were the forgotten, throwaway child, and I've been with you wherever you have gone, and I have defeated every one of your enemies. Those battles were mine. They were not your battles. And God says to David, you've got this all wrong. You've got this in reverse. We see it in verse 11, you're not going to build a house for me. I will make a house for you. All these great plans that David has for God, God says no. That's not how it works with me. Do you see the difference? God says, this is not about the house that you will build for me. That's the way that all of the other gods operate. That's how the world operates. You do something great for God and he will bless you, but not with our God. I'm the God who chooses you. I'm the God who rescues you. I'm the God who provides for you, who makes your name great, and who establishes a house for you. And God says, I'm going to make a promise to you, David. I'm going to make a covenant with you. I'm going to establish a house for you. And you see the play on words that God is using. The word house is flexible in its meaning, sort of like it is today. We would say a house could be something with walls and a roof, or it could also be a dynasty. We would say like the house of Tudor, the house of Stuart. Same thing going on here. David, you're not going to build me a house with walls and a roof, but I am going to make a line of kings to come from you. God says, I'm going to bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Your kingship will outlast you. Indeed, your house will reign forever and ever. God is committing himself to David and his descendants and promises that nothing on earth will break his word to them. What God says, he will do. 
But yet it's worth noting in verse 13 that God says, David, your son will build a house for me. But what I want to point out, what I want us to see is that the foundation, that the core, that the essence of that relationship is one of grace. The relationship is not first about what David does for God. The core of the relationship is one of grace, what God has done and will do for him. The remainder of the passage, we see that God is so committed to this promise that nothing will stop it. Not even death and sin and the passing of time will annul the promises of God. Look at verses 12 and 13. God promises that death won't take away the promise he's going to make to David. It says, when your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. It says, David, when you're dead and gone, this promise is still good. Death will not cancel the promise of God. If death won't cancel the promise of God, what about sin? What if David falls into sin? What if his descendants fall into sin? And just to give you a bit of a spoiler on the rest of the story, I can assure you that they do. David is about to blow it big time. But look at verses 14 and 15. The relationship that God is going to have to David is the relationship that a father has to a son. When David or his descendants sin, there will be consequences. There will be discipline. There will be pain. But that is not ultimate. Sin will not have the final word in this relationship. They will fall into sin. They will fall under God's fatherly judgment. They will face consequences. Exile is coming. But verse 15, my steadfast love will not depart from them. The word he uses for steadfast love is the word that Jason talked about last week. The hesed love of God. The covenant faithful, never giving up, always and forever love of God. If God's promises to David were dependent upon David's faithfulness and David's obedience, then this thing is over before it would even begin. But God is saying that even at your worst, even at your lowest, my hesed love will not depart. God says to David, I've set my love on you. I've made a promise to you. And there is nothing in heaven or earth that will take that promise away. But it's not just sin and death. It's also time. The passing of time will not annul the promise of God. Verse 16, your house, your kingdom will be made sure forever. Your throne will be established forever. There's so much that we could talk about how this is worked out in the Old and the New Testament. There's so much here of what we see about the character of God. But I want to keep our attention on the main thing. The passing of time. The rise and the fall of kingdoms. Death and sin. None of this would ever, can ever, 
break God's forever promise to David. How committed is God to keeping this covenant with David? If you follow the story after this point, it's going to get rough. It's a downward descent with very few bright spots. Wicked king after wicked king would come. The nation will be conquered. They're going to be sent off into exile. There's going to be another nation ruling over them. But the entire time, God did not forget his forever. Death and sin and time would not cancel his promise to them. Because from this same line, from this line of David came a great a greater David. The true and better David. The true king would come. And God's promises to David are fulfilled to us. And Jesus, what we see in shadows in this chapter are fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, we have a better presence than the ark. With Jesus, we have God in the flesh. Not a box that is carried around on poles, but a God who is truly and really with us. God with skin on. In Jesus, we have the promises of God made more sure to us. In Jesus, we have living proof that our God is not like the other gods. In Jesus, we see how it is that God relates to us by grace and not works. Because Jesus is the one who came to take our sin, whose perfect work and whose perfect record are credited to our account. Death and sin will not break God's promises to us because they broke his son. How can God be gracious to us? How can I wake up tomorrow morning? How can you wake up tomorrow morning and not think, I've got to do something great for God today. I've got to do something awesome for God today for him to love me. How can you wake up and not think that? Because by faith, you believe that Jesus has done it all for you. That Jesus has accomplished everything that is needed for you. And that by faith, all that he has is now yours. How do you know that death and sin and the passing of time will not revoke God's promise to you? His promises to you to be a God to you? To be with you, to never leave you or forsake you, to forgive your sins, to take you to himself when you die and to dwell with you forever? In the world to come, how do you know that God will not go back on his promises to you because Jesus is the one who has trampled sin and death in his sin and death, in his death and resurrection? Because Jesus is the one who took on sin on the cross. He's the one who took on your sin on the cross and has conquered sin and death. He is the one who reigns forever at the right hand of the Father. It's just as we sang in our first hymn this morning, Hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son. The last verse, the tide of time shall never his covenant remove. His name shall stand forever. That name to us is love. At this table this morning, we have those promises made visible to us. We have a sure promise from God that he is more gracious to us than we could imagine. We have a promise that he is far more committed to us than we would ever or could ever be to him. 
We have a promise that he loves us, proof that he loves us more than we could ever love him or ourselves. And what we see is that assurance and that promise that we can give up in our efforts to try to please him through our moral efforts. And we can believe that in Jesus, that we are pleasing to God, that we are accepted in him. To come to this table is to relate to God on the foundation grace. You don't come to this table offering God your goodness. You don't come offering God the great things that you've done for Him or the great things that you're promising to do for Him. You don't come because you have earned a seat at the table. No, you come because you believe that He has done it all for you. We come to this table because He invites us to His table We come with empty hands, not as givers, but as receivers of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, help us to believe that in Christ we have all that we need. Help us to believe that you are a God of grace far more gracious than we would ever dare to believe. And so by your Spirit, enable us to believe this truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.